again, I think for a long time, we were very focused on the animal and thought we were an animal industry where at the end of the day, we're people and an animal industry and probably interact with as many or more people in a day than we may interact with animals. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Pro Ampac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. ICC Animal Nutrition, adding value to nutrition. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Kemen Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, where our goal is to share emerging science that informs the pet food industry and helps us to continually innovate to support the health and well-being of dogs and cats. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Shoveler, and I'm here today with Dr. Jason Coe from the Ontario Veterinary College at the University of Guelph. Welcome, Jason. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kate. It's great to see you. Yeah, you too. I'm um, excited. The full disclosure for the listeners is uh, Jason and I are colleagues at the University of Guelph. Um, We have shuffled graduate students around, uh, but have yet to collaborate. So maybe this is the beginning of the next collaboration. Who knows? Um, Jason, uh, for the listeners, would you mind describing um, how you became an expert in veterinary communications? So uh, your path to where you are are today. And then a little bit about um, what you do at the University of Guelph in terms of teaching and research. Yeah, no, thanks for that question. And I'll start back a little ways and lead into where I am today. Uh, So I'm a veterinarian. I graduated from the Ontario Veterinary College in 2001, went out into private practice for a few years before having an opportunity to return to the Ontario Veterinary College to pursue some graduate work. And at the time, I was really interested in the human-animal bond or the human-animal relationship and thought that that would be the direction that I would go. And so came back with that in mind. And yet when I came back, I took on a role where I was continuing to practice and was responsible for overseeing students in what we had at the time called a wellness clinic. So I oversaw their medicine, but then I was also responsible for looking and coaching them on their communication in veterinary practice. So the Ontario Veterinary College at the time was the very first school in North America to commit to having a core curriculum looking at how we as veterinary professionals communicate with our clients. And so was doing that work, really interested in doing the human-animal bond. And as time progressed, I started to watch students because we had a two-way mirror into the examination room. And I was noticing, wow, that's really cool how that impacted this interaction and the outcome of that interaction. And I could see it also changing some of my own approaches to communication. And so my advisor, who was very curious or very interested in me taking on this research that they had started, um, was very pleased when I walked in and said, hey, I'm willing to shift and want to look into this area of communication and veterinary practice. And it's really kind of led into my career. And so finished up my PhD, which looked at veterinarians communication with clients in companion animal veterinary medicine, moved into my faculty role where my day-to-day responsibilities now are working with student veterinarians to continue to enhance communication, work with veterinary professionals and looking how they can enhance their communication and veterinary practice every day, and then develop a very active research program in that area as well. And so historically, Over the last 15 years, a lot of that research is focused on veterinary client communication. And yet, in the last couple of years, we've really started to broaden that to look at all different elements of communication within veterinary medicine. So whether that be how teams work together, how we utilize virtual care, how we make sure that people who have pets are having access to veterinary care. So the communication or knowledge elements to that, and then really trying to make a commitment to how do we take the knowledge we're gaining 
and put that in the hands of veterinary professionals. So one arm of our research is that knowledge transfer and what are some of the best approaches. Uh, and I feel very fortunate to be at the Ontario Veterinary College where we probably have one of the few programs that really looks at this part of veterinary medicine. And so excited to be here and chat a little bit about what we're doing and the impact that it can have for the animal care industry at broadly. ICC Animal Nutrition a Brazilian company with 30 years of history and present in more than 70 different countries, providing natural, sustainable, and technological solutions for animal nutrition, health, and well-being in a safe and scientific way, adding value in food production and helping to feed the world. Yeah, maybe maybe before we get into some of your research, uh, can you help me out a little bit? Because I'm, I, I do have to admit, I'm surprised that uh, the program that you started was one of the first because um, we all know that good messages get lost in translation um, or poor communication. You know, we all played the classic telephone game in, in public school to show how badly a message um, can, can get confused. Um, why did it take, why did it take that long in the veterinary community to start thinking about that communication and, and really adherence of the advice that veterinarians are giving uh, pet owners? Because this translates into all the advice that we give pet owners. Yeah, I love that question, Kate. Uh, I think it's a great question to be asking and reflecting on. I think for a long time, veterinary medicine was seen as an animal industry, where I would say that veterinary medicine is really a people and an animal industry. And so... Around 2000 is when Cindy Adams, who was my advisor for my PhD, who uh, was a social worker and then the PhD looking at end of life conversations really kind of took hold and developed and started looking at this area. And at the time really looked into human medicine to see like what is happening there. And so human medicine has been looking at how physicians and patients communicate with each other for probably 40, more than 40 years now. And so we were able to take some of that and see, huh, look at the impact it has on important outcomes like patient health, probably being one of the most important, but client satisfaction, the healthcare professional satisfaction, people's ability to remember and understand information. And so Cindy brought this over. That's where I, as when I came back to do my PhD, was tapped to work with students and enhancing their communication in the examination room. And so Cindy really started things off at that point in time in veterinary medicine. And we're very fortunate because the Ontario Veterinary College was supportive put it into all years of the curriculum, again, first school in North America to really take that commitment. And then we've seen that evolution from there. And so I think, you know, it has been interesting to have been involved in this area for the last 20 years, because initially it was, well, what role does communication have in veterinary medicine? And now people are like, hey, how can I get a little bit of that? And so I think there's this transition that's happened over 20 years where people are really starting to understand that, it's not just about the knowledge, it's how I communicate and transfer that knowledge to my client and helping them understand the value to the health and well-being of their animal. And so, again, I think for a long time, we were very focused on the animal and thought we were an animal industry where at the end of the day, we're people and an animal industry and probably interact with as many or more people in a day than we may interact with animals. So, um yeah. yeah, interesting. And and just out of curiosity, are, are these types of programs being picked up in veterinary schools uh, globally? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say short answer is yes. Um, and so I think from some of the work that probably led from the work at the Ontario Veterinary College, some of the research that we've been able to put out, more schools now have Similar programs uh, in terms of training student veterinarians to prepare them for the sort of what I call the social side of veterinary medicine in terms of communicating with clients, whether it be in a food animal or a companion animal uh, or an equine or any context that falls under veterinary medicine. And so there are definitely some schools that are hubs in terms of that training. And then the other thing that's happened, I would say, in the last 20 years is American Veterinary Medical Association, uh, COE, which is the organization that accredits veterinary colleges in North America, so at least Canada and the United States, has made communication one of the core elements that needs to be a part of veterinary students' training. Now, that varies considerably from school to school, yet it's really moved the needle from 
you know, to the point where we talked about like maybe not even recognized to now it's an expectation in terms of the training of student veterinarians. That's fantastic. Uh, and I, I couldn't agree more. I spend a lot of time with my undergraduate cohort, which is a little bit different than um, the veterinary cohort that you work with, but same kind of thing going out maybe into the pet food industry, the food industry, or the agricultural industry on how to speak to people, how to summarize work, what's what's relevant. And and I, I think that knowledge translation um, has really been underplayed uh, in a every sector that we do, we have to think a little bit more. And of course, this podcast would be one fantastic way of doing that. So let's dig in a little bit to your science. Um, So when you got started in researching veterinary communications with pet pet owners, you've talked a little bit about its importance. But can you tell us a little bit about where you started your career and what those um, key questions that you were asking and how you thought that they were going to benefit uh, the veterinarian owner bond? Yeah. So early on, I think a lot of my research was very exploratory. It was a new field. It was a new area. And we wanted to better understand so what is the role of communication in veterinary medicine. And so we started off in my work with some focus groups to better understand pet owners' perceptions of their interactions with the veterinary team and specifically the veterinarian, what they were looking for out of those interactions and why were they looking for the things that they were looking for. We also matched that with some veterinarian focus groups to see, well, are veterinarians looking at what pet owners are expecting from them in the same way we're hearing that pet owners are saying what they're expecting from them. And so did some early comparisons to better understand like what are the expectations. And there are definitely expectations that clients of veterinarians have towards the communication they have with a veterinarian. And not always, I would say, through the work that we've done, has that aligned with what veterinarians may think. And I think that that's a a larger message, right, in terms of really understanding that our perception may not be necessarily the reality. And so I think that's where research really adds and helps us start to pick away and understand a little bit more about others. And that's a big message. And even just our training with student veterinarians is that curiosity to understand the other person's perspective until you really understand that it's going to be really hard to work with them and come up with a plan that's going to fit for them. And so, again, if I look traditionally, we've probably had a very, uh, what we call a veterinarian's focused approach to communication, where some people will equate it to being like a shot put take the great knowledge, whether it be about nutrition or anything else, develop into a really good message and you throw it out and let it slap down onto your client just like a shot put would. Whereas we're really moving more towards this understanding, right? Where it's about two people having a conversation, quitting it more like a Frisbee where, okay, I toss you the Frisbee, you toss me that back. And so through that, we learn a little bit about each other. I learn what's a priority or of interest to you. I take that understanding. I take my medical knowledge and I start to identify, okay, here's some common ground we can work on. How do I put my medicine hat on in terms of incorporating that into your situation, your pet's preferences? Okay, here's a plan that maybe we can both get on board with. What are some adjustments? Okay, now we're both invested and committed for moving forward. And so really utilizing that communication to help move these conversations forward um, by understanding where people are coming from. And so going back, that's where we started with our research was to try and better understand, which has informed where we've taken our research from there. Okay. One of the things I noticed when I was perusing um, the research uh, that you've published online is that you use um, a lot of different methods uh, to try to understand what pet owners are thinking, what veterinarians are thinking, where whether they agree or not. Can you talk to us a little bit about how um, someone would explore those avenues of, of communication? And, and I'll tell you, the reason that I asked this question, too, is my I, I'll, I'll just use myself. I mean, we, we do some very well-controlled studies of com- consumer preferences, but we do them all by survey. And you've already alluded to the fact that... Um, sometimes what a veterinarian or a pet owner will tell you doesn't equate to the actions that they'll then subsequently perform. Uh, So I'm just curious how you meld all these methodologies together and frankly, how we can all learn 
about what is really happening versus what maybe should be happening or was happening or everything in between. Yeah, <laughs> that's an awesome question. And so I can imagine when you're looking at my research publication list, you're like, whoa, he's all over the place. And, you know, I describe my research journey as a bit of a toss salad because I really let curiosity guide me in where I go for the next question. And it's usually conversations like this that spur a question. So like your point earlier, maybe there's a collaboration that will kind of build itself out of this. In terms of approaches, because I have such a diverse interest, I really identify what my question is. And then I look and think, okay, what is the best tool to help me answer or move forward this question, which oftentimes relies on bringing in collaborations from other areas, particularly the social sciences to support, because I may not be a a methodological expert in that. That said, we've done a lot of work that has involved qualitative work, whether that be focus groups, one-on-one interviews with both veterinary professionals, as well as pet owners. We do do surveys because that can also be a building block. And then, then we do a fair bit of observational. So going back to your question, so the focus group for me is really a, a, a deductive exploration. So I want to really see what people's thoughts and ideas are. So through focus groups, through one-on-one interviews, it gives us the opportunity to kind of explore, just like you are with me, pushing me to share a little bit more than I might just put onto a survey. And so it really allows me to uncover things that maybe I never thought about before. Um, and so, you know, thinking about that in the context of nutrition, what do I learn about nutrition? So we've done some focus group work with veterinarians and pet owners. One of the things that, you know, in our pet owner focus groups, when we talked about pet obesity, that was interesting. Well, I shouldn't even say pet obesity. We talked about weight. What was interesting in the focus groups the owners were always focused on the underweight pet and talking about the underweight pet and really didn't give some attention to, you know, the overweight, which was really where our whole doing the study was coming from, recognizing the health potential implications of it, whereas veterinarians would talk more about the overweight. And so that discovery is like, oh, that's interesting. They're really focused on the underweight pet more so than the overweight pet. So we learned something through that process that we can then go out and build a survey. The challenge I see with surveys, which is why we use focus groups to inform them, is that those are really the questions that I can think of and came up with, which doesn't allow the leeway for the client's ideas or thoughts. So sometimes we put open-ended questions, but again, there's only so much someone will write into an open-ended question box. Yet, I think once we've got some understanding of some ideas, we can then go out and look, well, how general is this understanding amongst a population? And so we're using these methods to kind of feed into each other. Survey might raise some questions that we then go back and want to do some focus groups or interviews to better understand. The piece I would say that is even another piece, and you know, I'm really proud of the team and the work that we've done around it, is some of the observational research. Because we can hear things in a focus group. We can hear things in an interview. We can ask those questions on a survey. Yeah, there's nothing more telling than going out and putting a camera up in the corner of an examination room, recording the interactions between a veterinary professional and their client, and really looking at what is happening there. And so that, to me, is sort of the icing on the cake. That's real, natural observation of those interactions, which just no one can refute that this is what's happening in those areas where with surveys and focus groups, there's still some question, you know, are they telling you that because they think that's what I wanted to hear or, you know, there's social desirability in that. So, again, there's a lot of influences where, sure, they could be thinking, oh, there's a camera I want to do this in a certain way, yet the reality is our experience is most people forget about the camera over a couple of days. And therefore you start to gather some of that real what's happening in practice. And it's surprising because some of the things you even hear in focus groups aren't necessarily what you're seeing happen when the interactions. And so we've done some pretty large data collections of video recorded interactions so that we can get a pretty good feel for some of the things that are happening within those conversations, which is important to identify what's working and what is happening so we can continue to encourage and promote that, but also look at areas where it's like, okay, this maybe isn't as happening as much as everyone thinks. How can we support this with further research to strengthen that area of communication, strengthen that area of the relationship to really benefit everybody, whether it be the veterinary professional, their practice, the client, their patient, or the industry as a whole. And I think all of that is tied together in some ways. And so again, this work is really trying to look at how do we just continue to enhance the opportunities, enhance the delivery of veterinary medicine, um, and take care of animals. Yeah, definitely. And very convoluted. Uh, You're bringing up a lot of points about just 
our individual social interaction and, and maybe you know, one expectation that we have of, of clinicians, whether they be for animals or humans, is this really automaton kind of approach um, that, you know, it, it's going to be this really standardized person. They don't have feelings, so they can take on, you know, whatever burden I lay upon them kind of thing. And and um, it, it really starts to, to speak to how both the client and the clinician um, affect each other and change each other's approach to everything. Um, it's very, very convoluted. And I'm glad that you're doing research. I can see probably decades and decades and decades of research in this area. Um, now, I do know that recently you've been spending quite a bit of time looking at uh, the veterinary oversight of um, weight loss in, in um, between uh, dogs and cats who come to clinics uh, to enroll in weight loss programs and then how those uh, kind of uh, come along in terms of the communication. Would you mind uh, sharing some of those more recent um, results? Yeah. So maybe I'll tell if it's okay, a little bit of a backstory of how we got into this. Uh, and so the thing that has interested me is, so we've done probably from our communication research, the most in looking at nutrition conversations between veterinarians and clients. And some of this stem from the American Animal Hospital Association, World Small Animal Veterinary Association coming out and identifying nutrition as the fifth vital assessment with the recommendation an assessment and recommendation be a part of every companion animal's visit to the veterinarian. So we thought, okay, let's look at this. So we did some work very specifically to look at nutrition conversations. A lot of that was video-based to understand that piece. From there, we started thinking, okay, nutrition has a really important role in pet obesity. And the industry keeps talking about pet obesity from, you know, something that we want to address because there's an animal welfare, there's an animal well-being, there's an animal relationship potential component to that. And so, you know, we talk about this, but the needle, needle doesn't move in the right direction. If anything, it's moving in the wrong direction in terms of the prevalence of obesity among dogs and cats. And so we thought, hey, we need to try something different. And so we started thinking, okay, let's look at the conversation that's happening in the examination room and how might we be able to look at that and learn from that and how we can maybe enhance some of these conversations. And so again, looked at that with some observational research. Uh, it's quite interesting to see, you know, the nature of those conversations, how often a, a real recommendation was being made within those interactions. And there's opportunities there, I think, around that. What was further interesting is we're always interested in not only the veterinarian perception, but also the client perception. So um, Kat, who you know very well, because we've both had the opportunity to work with Kat, during Kat's PhD, did a project with me where our intention was to go out into practices, recruit animals, body condition score them, and then for those that were identified as being higher than a five out of nine in terms of body condition score, we were going to share that information with the client and understand where are you in wanting to make a change, a behavior change to address your pet's weight condition. Well, the pandemic came along and so we had to modify that project. So it ended up being a survey-based project, which we've already talked about previously, where we sent out a survey to pet owners. The first step of that was we gave them um, images, body condition score images, and asked them to self-identify their pets on the nine-point scale. So then we took those that identified their pets as being higher than a five, and we asked them this change instrument. So where are you in your, you know, wanting to make a change to address your pet's obesity? And the thing that, I mean, I was quite surprised that came back was we found 94% of those participants who had self-identified their pet as being overweight were in what we call a pre-contemplation or contemplation stage of wanting to change to address their pet's obesity, which means pre-contemplation, they're not even thinking it's a problem. They don't even see the need to take any action. So 52% were in that bucket. 42% were in the contemplation where they're thinking, okay, my pet maybe is overweight. Yeah, there's all these reasons I can't address that. So in terms of thinking about it, even just beyond veterinary medicine, the fact that there's this many pet owners in that place of not even recognizing obesity as being a concern for their animal, or if it is, there's you know all these reasons they can't. It just, I think, speaks to, as an industry, 
a pet industry, we can work to help people recognize the importance of pet obesity, working with them, whatever capacity that might be to help them get their pet into a place of ideal body condition. And I mean, it depends on the animal. Not all animals is the goal to get them into an ideal body condition. We know even just by reducing the weight on particularly severely overweight animals, we can improve their quality of life or getting their body weight down five to 10%. So again, there's opportunities there yet. It just, it almost blows my mind that, you know, from a pet owning standpoint, so many people are in that area of not even recognizing it necessarily as a problem, which comes back to the focus group work I talked about earlier on too, where people were very focused on the underweight rather than the overweight. And yet if we think of research, some of the best research on the impacts of having an overweight pet, some of the best outcome research in veterinary medicine or in the welfare areas around pet weight and the impacts it can have on the pet's life, chronic conditions, those kind of things. So there's so much in there, an opportunity in there uh, around that. So the other thing that we just did, and I'll throw in, we haven't even published it, it's just been submitted for publication, was we did another study where we asked pet owners using discrete choice, which is they get this survey, they're told on this survey hypothetically that their animal is overweight, and then we give them a whole bunch of variations of sort of five different attributes that might influence them to want to take action. The number one thing that came back that would get people to move towards taking action was this will help my pet live longer. And so I think that's a really, like it seems maybe intuitive for some people, yet when we look at veterinarians' conversations, that's not something that we're emphasizing. And I think as an industry, you know, it's something we can all do to emphasize more that if we could maintain an ideal body condition score for your pet, it's going to live longer, which comes back to where I started in my entire journey, the human-animal bond. By helping people manage the weight of their animals, it allows them to have that relationship for longer. I think everybody's winning in that. And so, yep. yeah, we've been doing some pretty interesting work there that I think has broad relevance beyond even just veterinary medicine, yet obviously veterinary um, profession has a role in that too. Yeah, definitely. Your your description reminded me of, uh, we did, um, we compared when I was working at Procter & Gamble, uh, we compared a vet tech, um, our attending veterinarian, and then um, two people who um, who were not even caretakers. They were cleaning staff. And we asked um, everybody to body condition score um, these cats. And what I found really, so the, the, the animal caretakers um, on the low end, they went even lower than the veterinarian. Um, so it, it speaks to the concern about being underweight and negating being overweight because we had some overweight cats and nobody was saying that they, the severely overweight cats were severely overweight. They were, they were overweight. So it kind of, it just, it really reminds me of, of your story and it, and it speaks to perception, um, of body weight. A question, I know it's not the topic of your research, but um, do you think that one of the problems that we have with convincing owners, and I would, and I think probably cat owners are worse than dog owners, um, with, with having a weight loss conversation for a multitude of reasons, but um, is part of the problem too that dogs and cats are relatively fairly stoic. And so if they do have any, for example, pain related to being overweight, whether that be a joint pain, um, as an example, is their inability to show that it's affecting their welfare in the same way part of the obstacle? Yeah. So I think, again, this goes back to where it's the individualistic nature of the conversation to see what is important to a client. And so I, uh, in some of the work that we've been doing this most recent project as part of our discussion, we talked about, like, we use quality of life tools for helping make decisions around end of life. Why can't we use a quality of life assessment around helping people recognize that their animal carrying extra weight is impacting their uh, quality of life? And then we can use that as a starting point. And as we improve the weight and we see them you know, become more active or uh, do things that they weren't doing before, 
So we could do it on both sides. We can do it preventatively, say, here are the things we're going to track and keep a watch of. And we can do it on the other side when we've got an overweight animal, talk a little bit about that and how we can see improvements in quality of life. So I do think that there's an opportunity yeah. to incorporate that conversation into it. Um, and it's recognizing what is important to that individual owner. And it's going to vary from person to person, which is where, you know, I think sometimes when we take broad messages, we're not able to reach every owner. And so that's where I think the veterinarian team, the veterinary team has a role where we can work with individual clients. I also think pet stores, breed, like there are other opportunities too, where we can work individually. And that needs to be part of the work that we do as a, a community, an animal care community, I think is looking where all of those different touch points are. To get back to my point earlier where obesity is a problem. It's a recognized problem among pets. And so if we can work together to really try and address this, I think as a animal care community, we could have an impact. Yet year after year, I hear people saying, hey, we want to focus on obesity. Well, many people have focused on obesity. We can't continue doing the same thing. We need to do something different. And I think part of doing that different is doing it holistically rather than all of us doing it in our own little silos. And so again, there's an opportunity there. Yeah, I love your idea about a quality of life assessment to to share with owners and and have them. And I was I, I am familiar with the end of life quality assessments and I'll um, freely share that I have, uh, we used those when I was at Procter and Gamble and I took them into making decisions about my own personal animals as well as they, they aged because, um, I, I believe that euthanasia is a gift that we can grant when the good times in an animal's life um, are outweighed by the poorer times. And I wanted to make sure that I, I didn't bugger that up. I, I really um, wanted um, I, I wanted the life lived by my pets to be the best life that they had. Um, and so I love your idea about that quality of life. You should, you should, somebody, somebody should send you some money, um, to implement that and design that with a bunch of people. Um, so that that's a really interesting um, as well, uh, really bringing together communication along with talking about how invested owners are in quality of life. What is your impression about how we communicate the dog and cat's quality of life? So in terms of uh, we being sort of the general we, the veterinary professional we, what do you think? So I think that a lot of it, I would say my friends and family have shared with me in the past things. So we're talking about obesity. And I remember one conversation I got into um, with a friend who went to their house, their cat um, had gained a significant amount of weight versus the last time I had seen them. And I started kind of dancing dancing around that. But my friend went with these things that seemed like they were positives coming from her where she said, um, well, it's, you know, recently in the last couple of months, he's no longer jumping on the counters because he, he doesn't have them. So I'm seeing all, all the cues here that his quality of life has gone down as, as his um, obesity or his overweightedness went up. And, and it laddered into a lot of other things that she liked to kind of discard to age. So, you know, he's not jump, you know, he's finally learned not to jump on the counters. You know, he's playing a little bit less. He's sleeping a lot. Um, and, and, you know, I'm piecing them together and it wasn't a, it wasn't a senior or geriatric cat that should be seeing a, a drastic reduction in physical activity, especially if it was encouraged through, for example, targeted playtime. Um, so how do you change that ideology or communicate with the owner when they describe all these things that that you believe to be deleterious on a biological front and they're explaining how it's a positive for the family. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. It really gets into the complexities of human nature, communication. And I think that that's where 
like as I'm listening to your story, it is understanding like what are the things that are important to this individual. And so they're seeing these as positives, probably because they don't want their pet onto the counter. And so recognizing that that is something that if we're going to move and address the pet's weight, we're still going to have to think about how we're going to manage that piece as well. I think that's where the study that, you know, again, we've just submitted, it hasn't been published yet, identifying for both dogs and cats by far what was important to people when we hypothetically said that their animal was overweight was that their um, animal would live longer. And so, again, I'd be interested for your friend if they knew, you know, they wouldn't have as much time with their animal. Would that make them think, okay, well, I need to find another way of getting them to stop jumping on the counter because they're just... I mean, people don't know what they don't know, right? Which is the whole piece of communication. It's a way of sharing knowledge. And, you know, the piece that really strikes me is that we have amazing research. I mean, nutrition as an example, we have amazing research into the science behind how we can address pet obesity, how we can address all other conditions. Yet at the end of the day, that research without my work and how we share that information with a pet parent or others work on how you share that sits there and doesn't get utilized. And I think that's a bit of my concern is that we have great work yet through our observational research. We don't necessarily see that work get utilized in the conversation and the sharing of knowledge. And so coming back to that piece of it all. And I do think, you know, there's a place for some of the marketing research that's done yet. That's done at a very high level. It's done usually specifically to try and understand how do we promote one brand where some of the research that we're doing is very individualistic and how do we work with that individual owner to really shape a plan that's going to fit for them and understand what's important to them. And so again, everything has its place. Yeah. I do think that if we want to take the great investment that's been done in broader research, the biological, the science behind nutrition, it is looking at how do we support that bridge, whether it be at the level with the veterinarian or the veterinary team or other um, areas of the industry that have the opportunity to have this more one-on-one conversation. Now I recognize it's not as efficient to go through and have all these one-on-one conversations yet. I think at the end of the day, if we can support people with the tools, the resources, and the knowledge to have those conversations, we will have a much greater effect broadly in terms of the impact we can make for people and their and their the relationship they have with their animals. And so, I mean, maybe it's altruistic, but that would be my sort of wish is that if we could come together and look at how do we support that and getting people the information they need so your friend isn't thinking hey, jumping, not jumping up on the counter, that's a great thing. Well, actually, maybe it's a sign that your animal needs some help and here's how we can help your animal. And let's address the jumping on the counter, but let's do it in a different way other than having your pet be overweight. Yeah, definitely. And and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, despite being a nutritionist and, and physiologist, I certainly teach all of the students that I teach in nutrition that I can make the best diets in the world, but if they are fed improperly or if the environment around the animal is inappropriate for that animal, it doesn't matter any longer that I'm feeding the best diet. Um, it, it's, it, the environmental effects of which nutrition are, is in is, is really huge. And so it does mean that we need to help teach people how to manage their animals a lot better as well. And that goes well, well beyond nutrition in a lot of, in a lot of cases. So given that we've been talking about obesity, we've been talking a lot about um, the veterinarian and the owner communicating, but one thing that we do uh, as the pet food industry, I'll pull myself in there, is we, of course, have calorie statements, which I think are probably a lot more valuable for veterinarians who are um, actually calculating feed amounts for animals that are under their direction. That makes, that's really for them. But the feeding amounts are there to help the owner decide on where is a good starting point for feeding. And what is clear to me is no one's looking at this. And um, 
or the owners are not looking at it. Given if you could maybe, and it, it, I know you haven't done research on this, but I want you to kind of move from one to the other. Is there a better way or could we imagine better ways to for pet food companies to convey how much is appropriate and how much is inappropriate? Is there, do you know anything that's going on? Because that that's the problem. You can send somebody home and say a quarter cup in the morning and a quarter cup in the afternoon. But if they pick up the half cup or they pick up a coffee cup and decide to feed, all bets are off. Yeah. I mean, I don't have sort of the magic solution to that. I mean, I would love to be able to create a bit of a, a working group, suppose something where we kind of brainstorm that, like what are some strategies that we could work together to create some better messaging around that? Coming into this conversation, not knowing that you would ask a question like this yet, but thinking broadly, like what, how can we work together more broadly? I was thinking, okay, there's a lot of room on a package where you could share some educational information around this. And so is this an opportunity to make people more aware of the impacts that having an overweight pet could have? And are they going to look at it? Probably not everybody, but will some? Probably. And are we making an impact with that? Maybe, but we got to measure that piece to it all. And so I wonder whether or not there are some opportunities around that. The other thing that comes to mind is, you know, you asked that question, uh, Alex, who you're now working with, and I did a project at one point in time where we looked at people's ability to measure food. And, you know, we measured the cup versus uh, the gram scale. And it was amazing to me at how inaccurate people were in measuring using a cup, even when it was a liquid measuring cup, or it was one of those food cups provided by a pet food manufacturer versus the gram scale and how much that animal actually should get. The other piece that was like something I think is important is recognizing that the smaller the amount, the more the inaccuracy varied, right? And so we're thinking about cats, or we're thinking about small dogs, yet is that message getting out to pet owners yet? The bag could be a great way where you've got the feeding instructions to provide some of that guidance around, particularly for cats, I think. Um, here's how you can get a much more accurate measurement, which is going to make sure, because I think the feeding guidelines are there. That's great. Yet, if they're not, they think they're following, but they're actually not following them in a holistic or true, like, uh, I won't say truthful, but following it in like an accurate way, it doesn't matter what the feeding guidelines are. They're going to feed their animal in a different way than it was intended to be fed. And so that actually measuring and how we measure it probably is a key piece, which again, it's looking at how do we take this knowledge that we've assessed that, you know, especially smaller amounts, people aren't going to be able to measure as easily with uh, a measuring cup or some other type of device. How do we take that knowledge and put it in the hands of as many pet parents, pet owners as we can, so that we can try and again, where, and that's where I see this opportunity of bringing together different members of the animal care community from different areas and professions and working together to try and like work together on finding a solution. Because as I mentioned earlier, pet obesity keeps coming back and coming back. Everybody in the veterinary industry circles around to it and wants to address it. We haven't really moved the needle, so we got to do something different. And I think the only way to do something different is to try and look at it in a different way, which probably means maybe, you know, how do we do this in a larger targeted way rather than just individual silos in terms of how we address it. And so, again, I'm curious as to what kind of impact could be brought with that. But I think that all different areas have different touch points. They also have different resources. And so if we bring those collectively together, is there an opportunity there? Because uh, I do think based on the work that's been done, some of the things that we've done, that there's a huge opportunity to impact both animals as well as people's lives by addressing pet obesity. And I know I've been very pet obesity focused. That's why our research has gone to this area, because I think there is an opportunity uh, there to better the lives of animals and in turn, better the lives of people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I love, um, I often uh, will use an Albert Einstein uh, uh, quote that goes something towards um, uh, understand the problem, don't seek the solution. Um, we've thrown a lot of potential solutions and you're right. They're not working. So clearly, we don't understand this problem well enough. It's not as simple as energy balance. Um, it's a lot more intricate when we have a pet owner um, that's part of the decision-making process and helps us get there. So I couldn't agree more. I think um, 
uh, it's a ripe area to tackle with some new, fresh ideas. And um, uh, I look forward to you calling that team together, Jason. So there you go. Thanks, Kim. A nice start, right? <laughs> We're coming from full circle. I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking is, you know, the work we've done, I think, you know, a lot's been invested to develop diets to address pet obesity. The work we're doing suggests that, you know, there's something happening at the pet owner level that we need to better understand. And so, you know, it is probably a team like ours that's focused on that piece that maybe needs to be sort of the initiator. Yet we need people that are going to be engaged and interested in coming and providing some fresh ideas some fresh insights, those kinds of things to work together to try and, you know, find a different approach. And again, I think that's it. What's the different approach that we can take in relation to that? Because I think there's something that we haven't paid attention and our team's just starting to get some noise around that's happening at the pet owner that if we really want to address pet obesity, we need to better understand that and then target resources collectively to try and help address that. Absolutely. So Jason, on that note, what is what are you about to come out with that everybody can look forward to? You want to give us some teasers? Some teasers. Yeah. Uh, So I think, I mean, our work is looking again, like I said, we've moved much broader where we're looking at multiple forms of relationships and communication in veterinary medicine. I think specific to nutrition, it's always been an area of focus and interest. Kat continues to work with me currently. So we're doing some work around obesity, looking at can we assist veterinary professionals in developing their um, communication tools to have this conversation and change the current conversation that's happening in veterinary practices. So that's a piece we're working on. I also shared a little bit earlier that we have some work we've just submitted. Hopefully will be published in the next little while looking at like, okay, if pet owners are in this place of pre-contemplation and contemplation, how can we move them along? And again, it was quite interesting for me through both of those surveys um, to find that, And it wasn't just asking, like, which of these would influence you most? It was a series of questions that they didn't know what the answer would be at the end that we pulled out because it was kind of this randomly assortment of things. And over time, you kind of figure out what is most important to them. My pet would live longer was that motivating thing. And so when we go to look at, like, how are we communicating that in veterinary practice? That's one of the fewest things we talk about. So hopefully we can shift that in terms of the conversation and pet food industry, I think, could shift the conversation towards, you know, how do we support these things that are important to people? So we're addressing or keeping their animal in a place where they're going to be healthy, live longer, uh, reduce chronic, the onset of chronic diseases, those types of things. So those are a couple of things that we're working in the nutrition. And then we have a whole bunch of other stuff that we're looking at in other areas of uh, communication, team-based veterinary medicine. Um, So it's an exciting time and lots happening for sure. Yeah, well, thank you for that, Jason. You definitely have a very unique and, and extremely fascinating area of research and teaching. And, and it's a pleasure to see that um, at this institution I'm at. It's time for our famous three. So I like to always end off with a couple of more softer questions for the listenership. So the first one, I love to ask veterinarians this. Are you a cat or dog person? You know what? That's a really interesting question. Had you asked me a few years ago um, when my wife and I were at a period where we didn't have any pets um, because we had young kids, I was traveling a lot. She was traveling a lot for work. I probably would have said I was a dog person. Yeah. Since then, we've brought both a dog and a cat into our household and Growing up with both dogs and cats, I didn't realize how much I missed having a cat. So I'm not really wanting to say I'm a dog or a cat person, but I feel like I'm leaning maybe towards being on the cat side of things. Yeah, don't tell Harley, my dog, that that's where I'm leaning right now. Yeah, that's that's fair. That was the cat's plot the entire time, by the way, Jason, was to make sure that they convinced you that you were their person. Um, And then last but not least, you run a very active uh, research program that garners interest from people and potential graduate students globally. What do you look for in graduate students? And if you were to give some advice about approaching a potential um, advisor for graduate school, what would that be? Yeah, I love that. Um, So what I tend to look for is I look for people that take initiative. So if someone reaches out to me, makes contacts, has interest in my area, shows that they've actually done some work 
to understand what I am doing and has shown that initiative and obviously commitment to wanting to do grad school. That goes a long way for me where I'll likely be setting up a meeting to talk a little bit more to understand and explore their interests and see where that opportunity could uh, go. And so I do think that, yeah, I tend to take a very soft approach to grad student recruitment, although currently we actually have an ad out saying we're looking for grad students. Yet I find that people who show that initiative show some interest and have done some background into the work that we've done so they understand what they're really inquiring about uh, goes a long way in terms of grad studies. And it tends to show... uh, you know, their curiosity, their initiative. And that's what you need when you're a grad student to get through that program and come out the other side with some pretty um, impactful work. Definitely. And your one piece of advice approaching an advisor or one thing to look for an advisor? So uh, I see those as two different questions. So I think the one thing in approaching an advisor is do some homework, understand, you know, what the area is and make sure it fits for you. Uh, in relation to that. I think in terms of looking for an advisor, you want to find someone that you're comfortable with. So oftentimes you can tell from your first meeting and if somebody's not setting up a meeting to connect with you in person or over you know, Teams or whatever platform it might be, I mean, I think you want to get that feeling to see, is this going to be something that we're going to click and I'm going to get along with? Because um, that just makes it more enjoyable, makes your life much better. And so, yeah, for me, that would be critical pieces, make sure there's a meeting to kind of get to know each other, see that there's a connection and and kind of work forward from there. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, your answer just brings me really back to you mentioned Kat and and she did do her master's with me, but that, you know, I just I just knew the two of you were going to get along like a house on fire. Um, and, uh, and I believe it's worked out quite well. So I'm super, super happy to see that success story. So, um, for those of you interested in, in applying to Dr. Ko's, uh, research lab, you can look online. He's got a faculty page at the, at uoguelph.ca. Um, he's currently looking for graduate students. And if you're a member of the industry that's looking for, um, help in this arena of communication as well, uh, those same avenues through the Ontario. Ontario Veterinary College at the University of Guelph. With that, Jason, thank you so much for this fascinating podcast and have a great day. Yeah, thanks, Kate, for having me. It's been awesome. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wise Minutes, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time-consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at the help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.